Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 14. You guys were there a few weeks ago, so it's pop quiz time. Everybody ready? Jeff didn't tell you. He wants to know how much you guys retain of his stuff. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But you can turn to Romans 14, or 15 rather, and uh, what we're going to find is that Romans 15 kind of brings to the end this passage in Romans 14, what you guys were speaking, or what you guys were learning about rather in Romans 14 just a few weeks ago. So we're going to go there this morning, and uh, I've been asked just to, to kind of fill in there Romans 15, 1 to 7. But the words that we sang this morning, the praise team did a great job. And uh, let Christ be all, and I be nothing. What a great anthem to have for God's people. Let Christ be all, and I be nothing. So what? let me summarize a little bit for you, Romans 14. Let's try to get us back on track as far as where we were before we had a little bit of a couple weeks off here. Romans 14, there are two groups of people, right? There are a group of people that are comfortable eating certain kinds of food, and there's another group of people that are not, and they decide they're going to eat vegetables because of their conscience. They're not comfortable eating certain foods. And there's another group of people that celebrate holy days on different days, and and their conscience brings them to that decision. That's really what's kind of going on in Romans 14. And the thing for us to note is that there are always going to be people in our midst that are at different levels, spiritually, obviously physically, but spiritually, spiritual maturity is something that progresses in us, right? And so there's always going to be different levels of spiritual maturity in the church. And Jeff challenged us by saying a few weeks ago, we don't ask those people that maybe are behind us, we don't say, well, why are you not where I am? Remember hearing that? Why are you not where I am? But we're actually called to embrace all levels of maturity. Because, and and here's why it's important, because all of us were at one point there, right? You were once a child. Those that are with you maybe are in that position, new in their faith. You used to be there, and so we can relate to them. Maybe we're still maturing in certain areas. And so we're not talking just about, when we're talking about differences, we're talking about difference of opinions, right? Not differences in theology and what God's Word says, but in the difference of opinions and in the interpretations of those things. So Paul's really talking about things that are not essential in the Christian faith. Well, what's essential is the gospel and understanding the gospel, but the food that you eat, the way that you celebrate a holy day, those are not essential, Right, and we're not going to be specific, but there are essentials and there are non-essentials when it comes to our faith. And Paul is saying in the non-essentials, unity. Unity. And that's why we've entitled our sermon in Romans 15 this morning, Unity. We have to recognize what is opinion and what is fact. And that's hard because oftentimes our judgment clouds our viewpoints and our biases and we see things as, all things as fact, right? And all things as true. And well, my opinion is the greatest opinion because uh, I'm me, right? And, and maybe it's because of pride. So we have to recognize those things. And here's the reality of Romans 14 is that 
Both kinds of people can serve God faithfully. The strong and the weak can serve God faithfully. Those that are mature in their faith and those that are growing in their faith, they can all serve God faithfully. And it says that in Romans 14. So what is our posture to those who are more immature than us? What is our posture? We ought to embrace them as Jeff challenged us because that makes us stronger. So if you have your Bibles in Romans 15, that's really the, a nutshell of 14. Let's go to 15 and let's just close off this idea. This morning we're talking about unity. I want to read the passage for you and then we will go from there. Romans 15, starting in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing we see from Paul is the responsibility of the strong to promote unity. The responsibility to promote unity in verse 1. And who does he say the strong is? Well, Paul says, I am one of those, right? He says, who are strong? He says, we, associating himself with those who are strong. And the strong, if we look back in verse 14, it's those who their conscience allowed them to understand the gospel, the implications of the gospel, that they no longer had to not eat certain foods and celebrate on certain days. They understood the freedoms that they had, right? Those believers, they got that. And Paul says those were the strong believers. And the weak maybe were those who who struggled with that, who struggled to understand what the gospel, uh, the implications of it on our lives, the freedoms that we now have, maybe just immaturity in the faith. And we've said we have those in our midst. And in some ways, we are those people. There are strong people in the church, maturity-wise, and there are weaker people. And Jeff reminded us that we all used to be there in Romans 14. So if you're strong, remember that, that you used to be there. But the burden, he says, the burden is placed on who? On the strong. The burden and the responsibility is placed on the strong to look out for and bear with the weak. Now, when we look at the culture and the world in which we live today, that is very opposite of what we see, right? The strong and the rich, they rule at the top. They're at the top of the pyramid, right? And the weak typically serve the strong, right? That's typically what we see. But God's kingdom is a paradoxical kingdom where it's completely opposite and it goes against our human natures and what we typically see. Because if we remember the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we would read, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who are hungry. God's kingdom is paradoxical. And so what does Paul say the strong ought to do? Well, the first thing he says in verse 1 there is they're to bear with the failings of the weak. So those who are unable to see that their faith in Christ has freed them, 
from certain ceremonies and rituals, we ought to bear with them. Our freedom in Christ frees us to have different opinions than others around us and different opinions in the non-essential elements of our faith. But does that characterize our relationships? You know, is there freedom in your relationships with people around you, family, to have different opinions on things that are not gospel-related? And what does he say? Bear with the failings of the weak, so don't just tolerate, don't just, not just to put up with them, right, as if there's some burden that we drag along with us through our lives, but we're to carry that burden, to bear with them. Now, if you remember Galatians 6 and other things that Paul's written, he says in Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens, right? And so fulfill the law of Christ. Take the burden on that the weak are carrying. That's what it means to bear with, right? It's as if you carry that burden with them. You help them through that burden that they are carrying. So we don't criticize, we don't judge We don't condemn, we're sympathetic to those who are weaker, to the weaker brother. And that asks the question for us, with the people in our lives that we disagree with, what's my attitude towards that person? What's my attitude towards my friend whom I disagree with? Do I look down on them? Do I I judge them? Do I criticize them behind their backs? Do I talk bad about them? Do I say, wow, you really should be here and you're not and and I'm surprised? Judgment. Or do we help them carry that burden? As Paul says, bear with the failings of the weak. And verse 1b, another thing Paul says is not to please ourselves. The responsibility to promote unity, we do not please ourselves. Verse 1b. We don't insist on using our Christian liberties as we, at the expense rather, of the weaker brother. We don't use our Christian liberties and our understanding of the gospel. We don't please ourselves with the freedoms that we have. The freedoms that we have, not just in food laws, not just in what Paul's talking about in Romans, but in all of life because of the gospel. And what is Paul really trying to address here? He's really trying to get at this idea of selfishness. Now you guys, we all know what selfishness is, right? Can I get an amen? I'm selfish. I hope you guys understand that. You are. And if you're not, I'd love to talk to you because you're doing something right that I'm not. But one thing, and I will say this, one thing, and maybe you can relate to this, one thing, maybe two things that actually reveal the most selfishness in my life would be my marriage and my kids. And you've been there before. Some of you have kids. Some of you don't, Maybe, you're, but you are married maybe. Marriage and children have this way of just showing me my selfishness. And so, for example, maybe if you remember back to the kid days when you had a baby sleeping in a crib and two o'clock rolls around, the baby starts crying, you wake up, you go in there, you stick a soother in, baby stops crying, okay, back to bed for me. Two minutes later, baby's crying again. I go back in to see what's going on. And I put a blanket on the baby, okay? Baby stops crying, She's, it's all good. Go back to bed, just about to fall asleep. Five minutes later, baby starts crying again. And now this is real because this is the stage of life we're in. And this actually just happened to me last night. So, uh, so God was working on me in preparation for this morning. Let's go back in again, five minutes later. Let's, do, let's try a bottle. 
So we get a bottle, heat it up, take it up to the baby in the crib. All good, baby falls asleep. But this whole time throughout all of this, just the buildup and, and the frustration. I don't know if you remember this. Maybe I just am I'm really selfish. But the frustration just starts building, right? I'm starting to see 4 o'clock, 4.15, 4.30. It's like, I got to get up. Baby, don't you understand? I'm preaching tomorrow. The frustration that because of selfishness, right? Because the baby's not doing what I expected the baby to do, which is give me a full night's sleep. And the same is in marriage, and I won't go into examples on that, but uh, the same is true in marriage. It happens, and Bailey puts up with me. She's a great girl. You should meet her. But the world tells you that life is all about you. That's what we, that's what we hear from us. Life is all about you. Look out for yourself. And a newsflash for you, life is not about you, right? Life is not at all about you, and we sang it in these songs this morning. The more that you make your life about you, the more miserable person you are going to be. And the more that you make everybody around you, and the more you expect them, rather, to serve you and to be for you, the more miserable, angry, frustrated, lonely you are going to be as a human being. John 12, 25 says, whoever loses his life Sorry, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The kingdom of God is a paradoxical, paradoxical kingdom, and we've been placed on this earth to serve, not to be served. And so when it comes to unity, that's what Paul's trying to promote here, unity. And it's impossible without the grace of God, without the grace of God to promote unity. Because selfishness always gets in the way of those things. And selfishness is directly opposed to the gospel. So the second thing Paul leaves for us is, in verse 2, you'll find it. He says, please your neighbor. In promoting unity, please your neighbor. All members of the church are implied here, not just the strong, although Paul is still emphasizing towards the strong, and he's placing the burden of responsibility on the strong, we're to please our neighbor. Now, not all pleasing is good. Paul reveals why in a second here. But Paul's really calling for a pleasing that is going to honor God. But Paul is not trying to set up as a situation where all of the weaker brothers and sisters rule everything and we always bow the knee to them. That's not what Paul's trying to set up when he says, please your neighbor. And we know this because the Scriptures call us to be accountable to each other, to confront each other and a brother and sister in sin, right? And so sometimes those things are for their good, right? And we're not just pleasing them and doing what they would uh, like us to do, but we actually honor and uh, hold up the Word of God before them maybe. But Paul is specific in what he expects pleasing your neighbors to look like. So the first thing he says is, for his good, for his good. We ought to consider one another in these matters, in the matters of non-essential things. And so Paul's not saying do whatever is going to make them happy. Galatians 1.10, we're reminded of this, for, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Jesus, of Christ. So Paul's condemning this kind of for his good that would be well, you just do whatever they want you to do. Paul condemns that in Galatians, and this is not what he's talking about here 
in Romans, he's talking about considering what is true and good for the other person. And doing what is good for that other person means we are not putting a stumbling block before them in our choices. And what else does he say? To build him up. To build him up. What does that mean? To please someone in such a way that their faith, their faith will be strengthened so that they would grow in godliness. Do you ever consider your brother and sister in Christ when you differ? How can I help them to grow in their faith? Not in a prideful way of let me tell you this, this, and this, but how can I approach this situation that would build them up, that would encourage them to look at the Scriptures, that would encourage them to think about their, maybe their view, and, and life is not about making everybody agree with you, which we do try to do in selfishness is surround ourselves with people that are going to be an echo chamber for us. But we ought to build each other up. Now, upbuilding is not numerical growth, and so what Paul is saying is he's not saying just build up the church and just get as many people to it as you can, and as many people in agreement as you can here. It's about spiritual growth. That's what upbuilding is about. And I know here at Grace, I would condemn, or rather I would um, just say a great job to you guys and commend you for what you are doing here. For just from the time that I've been here this week, being able to see the opportunities that members have here and people to enrich their spiritual lives is a great thing because God calls us to make disciples and part of that process is, is a sanct- an ongoing sanctification. And it looks different for every church. But God is not glorified by size. He's glorified by people that behave like Jesus. That's really what glorifies God. It's not about the numbers. It's about who looks like Christ, who emulates Christ, and how many do. And so we please others in a way that is for their good, and it builds them up. And this kind of pleasing is what promotes unity in the body of Christ. And then in verse 3, Paul brings us back to the gospel. Right, the greatest example, Christ's example of selflessness in verse 3. Maybe the greatest example Paul could have thought of was the life of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, echoing Mark 10:45, which says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul anchors this exhortation to unity in the gospel. And the gospel is an example of such unity. What Paul's really trying to show us in verse 3 here is that all of Scripture is about Jesus. Our faith, everything that we believe, the foundation of that, Christ, the gospel. And so Paul inserts God and Jesus into the quote in Psalm 69 where he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, fell on Christ. All the hatred of mankind towards God fell on Christ. We know this in the gospel. And so, the question remains for us then. Are we not willing to please our fellow brothers in a matter of consciousness, in a matter where it's not about the gospel? Are we able to please that person or to work towards unity with that person because of the gospel. We know the sacrifice that Christ paid for us. We know the agony He went through. We know the torment, the torture, the beating for us on our behalf. 
And yet sometimes we elevate having to bear each other's burdens and bear one another's burdens and having to deal with and bear with people that do not believe the same as us. We elevate that burden to the same burden that Christ bore on the cross for us. And it's nothing close to the same burden that Christ bore for us. So how do you see others that you disagree with? How do you see them? As a burden? Christ certainly doesn't see us in that light. And life is learned by imitation, right? And I know this because I would get myself in trouble almost daily, it seems, or weekly with three boys in the house that are all under four. They really say everything that they hear. And uh, sometimes you can get yourself in trouble. And you guys know this as parents probably, right? How many times do you have to say, oh, no, don't say that. I know mommy and daddy said that, but you should, we're not going to say that. We shouldn't say that, right? They learn by imitation. We learn by imitation still now, here, as we're growing in our faith. We learn by following Christ's example. And so as a result, what Paul is saying is the strong ought to be an example to the weak in this area of promoting unity. And then on the back of this quote of Psalm 69, Paul draws us to God's Word. God's Word written to us in verse 4. Clearly what Paul has in mind here is the authority of the Scriptures for all of life. The authority for all of life. All of our views, all of our opinions, our worldview must be anchored in something. Otherwise it won't stand, right? And Paul believed that to be, that anchor to be the Word of God. And that too, it should be for us. And we ought to consider when we say we believe something, when we're opposed to somebody, what do the Scriptures say about this? And we ought to be anchored to the Scriptures. See, there are people in, evangel- evan- in the evangelical circles today that would say we need to maybe unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament or we don't have to read that and follow the Old Testament. Well, Paul is saying the exact opposite of that here. He's saying, what does he say? I should read it for you. Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for what? For our instruction. That's the Old Testament. All the stories, they were written for our instruction. They were written for us to instruct us in our faith. So we can't just leave that stuff. We can't just leave the Old Testament. And Paul's new message of the gospel does not nullify the whole Old Testament. Jesus fulfilling the law does not nullify and do away with all of the Old Testament. All of God's Word is for us. And specifically, it's for two things, Paul says in verse 4. For our instruction, which makes us think of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of Scripture In 2 Timothy, Paul's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the New because he doesn't have the New Testament. All of Scripture. We look back now and we can say all of Scripture, including our New Testament. It's written for our instruction. And then secondly, it's written that we might have hope in 4b. God's Word is intended to comfort and console us. That we might have hope. We receive strength and comfort from God's Word as we live in a way that honors God. So reading the Bible is more than just an exercise of the mind where we gain knowledge of 
things, of God, of spiritual things. It's more than that, is what Paul's saying. It has the ability to strengthen you and to comfort you. It's active. And he says, hope comes from both endurances in the struggles of life and through the scriptures as we see Jesus, as we see what he's done, as we see him through the scriptures. And as we look at all that Jesus did to make a way to God for us. And more to Paul's point, this hope also includes the future unity of believers, which is written in the scriptures. So the scriptures are for our instruction. And then in verse 5, Paul says he gives us the source of Christian unity. This is not specifically a prayer as we read through it. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. It sounds very much like a prayer he would have prayed for the Roman believers. Paul knew that apart from prayer, unity was impossible. Overcoming selfishness by the grace of God was impossible without prayer. And so may God grant unity. May God grant endurance and comfort through the Scriptures. May God work that in each of us, in the body of Christ. Unity is not obtained by the weak just giving in to everything that the strong want to see and vice versa. It's not found in the strong giving in to the weak where we all just say we'll follow what they say. It's a gift of God obtained in part by strong and weak working together, unified together in one voice in spite of our differences, in spite of our opinions. And it's obtained by the strong leading in example. That's why Paul places the burden at the beginning on those who are strong to please their neighbors. And then finally, as we come to verse 6 and 7, we see the purpose of Christian unity. The purpose. The summary of all of chapter 14, the first seven verses of 15 are found right here in these two verses. So I want to read them for you. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Accept all believers as Christ accepted you. How did Christ accept you? Think back to the time when you came to Christ. What were you like? And Romans says, when we're still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Christ welcomed us. He took on our sin when we were sinners, when we hated God. And when we consider the gospel, which is really what Paul is getting at here, Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Look at where you were before you had Christ. See, God is not honored if the church is fractured by division. And not just Grace Baptist, but the church at large, the universal church. God is not honored when brothers and sisters, believers in the gospel, are fighting. And we are fighting. There are times... In, in different spots, and because of all the COVID restrictions and all that, Christians are fighting each other. And not just over COVID, there's other things. And just because there's not some big split happening doesn't mean that we can't take some introspection and look at where we might be able to promote unity better, unity around the gospel. 
Because certainly you and I are going to interact with people that you disagree with. And I hope you do. I hope you take the time to listen to those people and to interact with those people. People that we disagree with that we think our opinions are more important than theirs. And God, in these verses, is honored when Jews and Gentiles, male and female, believers in Christ, are living in harmony together. One shoulder to shoulder, one voice. And it reminds me of John 17, Jesus' prayer. Maybe you know this. I'll read it for you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Paul's, or Jesus rather, is praying for the believers there that he was with, but also those who would believe. That's you and me. Jesus is praying for us. And what does he say? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. People are watching. People are watching Christians. They're watching the church. They're watching each other. And what's at stake here for us is what Paul says in verse 7, God's glory. That's what's at stake. God's glory is at stake. Now, there's this very wise theologian named Tim McGraw, which you guys probably know of Tim McGraw. Yes, 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 some of you. I just heard a song on the way in. I heard PEI people really like country music. Now, this may not be true of everybody. I'm not going to paint you with a broad stroke. But on the way in, Tim McGraw was singing a song on the radio that I heard. And it's interesting because the world is seeing what we're talking about. The world is seeing the disunity, the division, the fracture, the fractions. And this is what he says, I think it's time to come together. You and I can make a change. Maybe we can make a difference, make the world a better place. Look around and love somebody. We've been hateful long enough. You guys maybe have heard that song before. The world sees this. The world needs unity more than anything right now because they're seeing the disunity. And as a church, we are different. We're different from the world because we worship the true God. We have something, the gospel, to offer hope that the world cannot offer to the rest. May God's glory be what truly matters to you in this area of unity with the other believers and pleasing others. And kind of as we wrap up our time, I want to read for you a quote from a commentary as I was studying this week. Divisions in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission, the proclamation of the gospel and the glorifying of God. That's why we're here, to proclaim the gospel and to glorify God, our Creator, right? And so all these other things are, can be, if we let them, be distractions to that mission, to proclaim the gospel and to glorify and honor our Savior and God. So may it be said about Grace Baptist that they... May it not be said, rather, that they were all about themselves. May it not be said about God's people, that they couldn't be united together, that they couldn't serve one another with one purpose and one goal around the gospel. May it not be said about, that not be said about us. But may we be a people of unity that come around the gospel 
that caused the world, as Jesus prayed, to turn to Christ and see God and Jesus as their Savior. So the question for us this morning, how can I come alongside someone that I know that I differ with, believer or unbeliever, Maybe it would be someone that's a believer and I can promote the gospel with them even though we disagree in certain areas. How can I work with them and serve them and promote them and and put them before myself? And how can I welcome and promote unity to the glory of God? Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank you again for our time together this morning. And we thank you for your scriptures that are clear for us. God, we thank you for the example that Christ was to us of unity, of sacrifice, of selflessness. And Paul so aptly encourages us to consider the cross when we think of of bearing each other's burdens and bearing the burdens of those who are before us. And so, God, we pray for your grace and your strength to understand how your word might apply to us this morning, how it might change our lives. God, we know that Your word is active and living, and God, we just ask that it would do just that in us today, that it would change us. And God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life lived for us. And God, we just pray that unity would be something that the world sees and in turn comes to Christ because of, because they see that it's different. God, help us, give us grace, and we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.